So Matthew chapter 7, and verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Let's pray. Father God, we we come before you this morning in much need of your grace. Pray, Father, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. That we would, Father, not look at our neighbor, not look at our spouse, not look at our children, not look at our grandchildren. Father, we would examine our hearts first. That planks and logs might be removed. That eyesight might be restored. That you would be glorified in our lives. That we might be then be able to turn around and to administer the salve of the gospel to others. Teach us this morning, Father. May your word parade in glory before us. May it render our hearts prone to worship. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You know, it's, it's interesting. On, on Sunday mornings, oftentimes I, I say oftentimes, anytime it's my time to, to preach, I always sit down early in the morning and before anybody else gets up and I, I take my notes and I take the Bible and just pray over it and go over things and over and over and over and over. And after that time, the kids are up and they come down and they want to watch TV and, okay, it's time for breakfast. And I always, always fix pancakes on Sunday morning and my, my daughter knows that. She says, okay, we're, we're eating pancakes. It must be Sunday morning. Yes, that's right. It's Sunday morning. <laughs> um, uh, but, but it's always kind of during those times that a lot, a lot of times just imagery and pictures and things become very vivid and as we were sitting down at breakfast this morning, um, Addie Grace, who usually has milk uh, to, to drink at breakfast or any meal, she, she loves milk, and, Addie and Ellie usually has juice. That's just their preferred things. And we're sitting there at breakfast, and I'm, uh, you know, they're chatting and talking, and I'm kind of going through things in my head, not really paying attention to them. And Addie Grace, all of a sudden, just she goes, Daddy, I drink healthy. Ellie does not. And Ellie, our three-year-old, she... She sits up in her chair and she goes, I do too, Addie Grace. <laughs> I was like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> um, but it, it's, a, it's, it's amazing how very quick young children are to, to assert and, and discern and judge right and wrong, good and bad, better, best, worst. And, and then how quickly they are to then appropriate it to themselves and cast that upon someone else. You know, and... Leslie and I both being firstborns, having two children, um, I, I think both of them are, have a very keen sense of, of judgment and justice, and they assert it in, in different ways. And, and so this morning was just kind of one of those ways where, okay, we're, we're going to have a, a, a discussion about, about this. And <laughs> so it was, it was interesting, but it, it, it just reminded me of, and how quick are we to, to cast judgment, to assess value of something, and then to put that above someone else? I was driving to work one day a few weeks ago, and I, I saw a billboard for Planet, Planet Fitness, and the, the new slogan is, the world judges, we do not. And I was like, man, that's just a, that, that's a, that's a good marketing slogan. 
Uh, it's very effective. You know, in, in a culture that boasts equality and, and freedom, amazingly, we're very, very insecure in, in our own skin, right? There's this sort of constant nagging feeling that somebody's assessing us for value and we're always falling short of that. It's sort of always the looking over our shoulder going, all right, who's watching me? You know, who, who's determining, am, am I worthy? Am I of value? No. And, and so in that gym membership, you know, who wants to go to the gym where you're constantly being scrutinized and all you really want to do is you, you want to meet a small goal of, uh, you know, losing a few pounds here or, or, or tightening up a little bit of skin there or, or toning a muscle there. I mean, that's really all you want to do. And you go in and you feel like everybody's judging you. Everybody's assessing you. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it, it's, it, it, it's effective. But it's interesting, the tagline, the world judges, you know, we, we do not. You know, that seems almost like something that's befitting for the front sign on a, on a church, right? Um, and, and yet so often, the, the, the church itself is, is where that condemnation falls. Um, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here in, in verses 1 through 2 is probably one of the most misunderstood and most, uh, most misquoted verses in, in all of Scripture where Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, the, the, our culture will oftentimes take this and say, well, you shouldn't judge, right? Or who are you to judge when, when we might give an, an assessment of something? Or I, if maybe you've heard this before. Somebody says, uh, well, God will judge me, not you, right? They're all statements that, that annul any responsibility that we have to hold one another accountable to any sort of a, of a standard. And this is fitting for our day when we sort of assess the, the current landscape of our, of our culture. We're in a postmodern era, right, where, where the culture in general wants to dissolve absolute truth. You know, well, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. You know, sort of this to, to each his own. Basically, you have the freedom pers- to pursue whatever's best for you, and I'll support that as long as it doesn't conflict with my own similar pursuit, or as long as it doesn't conflict with somebody else's similar pursuit. Culture says, well, you don't have the authority to assign right and wrong, so therefore you should treat moral distinctions with indifference. And this is very true where we live in the, in the Bible Belt, right? That, that many such s- spiritual people, they've left the church very, very much because of the actual truth uh, of, of this text, this hypocritical judgment. And, and, and it's a fair indictment, right? I mean, where does, what happens so oftentimes in, in churches after the service or in Bible studies or amongst fellow Christians, gossip, right? Did you hear what she did? Did you see the way he behaved? Right? Gossip. Gossip. And in, in fact, and many of you may bear the scars of this. You know, go into to most churches today and you don't have to sit and, 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 and just be a fly on the wall for very long before gossip sort of starts to come up. And oftentimes, what is that? It's a judgment. It's a judgment of, of somebody else's actions based off what you perceive is right or wrong. I heard this from a, a, a gentleman I was, I was speaking with uh, about two weeks ago. and I uh, didn't know him very well and was, I was chatting with him and 
you know, he'd mentioned, he said, well, I'm a, I'm a, that's why I became a spiritual person. I said, okay, well, wh- what does that mean? Tell me what that, what that means to you. And I got to hear a little bit more of his story. And he grew up in a, in a Christian home. He grew up in the, in the church, but he'd since left it. And I said, well, well, are you a Christian? And he said, no, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a, a Christian. And in his story, I realized he recognized the hypocrisy that was in himself and he didn't want to be associated with that. But he'd also been, he'd, he'd also been the, the, I'll say the victim, but he'd been the recipient of a lot of judgmentalism and, and criticism in, in his own life. Um, I won't go into to the details in that, and I haven't had a chance really to talk further you know, with him about it. But it was clear that he had left the, the church, rightly or wrongly, because of a lot of the judgmentalism that, that, that he had experienced. And this is true for so many people. I think so many of us, we don't have to go far before we encounter somebody who has this story. And maybe it's part of your own story. Dave Matthews has this line in a song, and I think it's true. An eye for an eye leaves only a, f- uh, leaves only a room full of blind men. And that's true, is that oftentimes in our, in our relationships, we treat them more as if it were an eye for an eye uh, than it is with, with grace. Judgmentalism seems to permeate so many, so many relationships. And so in our, in our culture, again, alleviating any sort of a, an absolute truth alleviates any sort of responsibility for, for one another. But we see this conflict constantly in, in our culture because constantly everybody's wanting to assert the direction that, that people should follow. Groups, political, uh, political parties, uh, always hoisting a flag saying we're, we're going this way. While the dominant portion of at least social culture goes, well, let's not lay labels, let's not, let's not have absolute truths. They conflict with, with one another. And so in these verses, here's, here's sort of the question In the name of free grace here, do we turn a blind eye to other people's faults? Is that what Jesus is saying? In the name of free grace, do we, do we turn a blind eye to other faults, to other failures? What is Jesus teaching us here about how we assess and how we address the moral, moral failures around us? What is he teaching us? Because the, the culture wants to sort of twist this and just say, all right, well, we, we shouldn't assess judgment on, on anyone. It alleviates that, you know, that, that responsibility uh, uh, from, from us. Is that what Jesus is teaching? No, he's, he's not teaching. He's not giving us a blanket statement to cease discernment over right and wrong and good and bad. And we can see this is what follows because what comes after these first two verses are two statements that don't make sense if that's what Jesus is saying. Look at this. Jesus uses the picture of of, of the man with a log in his eye trying to take the speck out of, out of someone else's eye. And he says, he says that the log and the speck have to be removed. In verse 5, he says, take the log out of your own eye so you'll see clearly to take the speck out of the brother's eye. The speck and the log have to be removed. So you have to get rid of it. And then what about verse 6? Jesus giving, he's instructing us not to give what's valuable to those who would grossly misappropriate it. Do you see that? If, Jason, if Jesus is giving a blanket statement for us not to use discernment in right and wrong and how we deal with that within relationships, then those two pictures that he gives don't make sense at all. 
They, they don't make sense. So Jesus has to be meaning something else. He's got to be teaching us something else other than don't, don't use discernment in, in judging right and wrong. There's other texts in this too. Later on in Matthew, Jesus is going to teach uh, about church discipline and going to a brother who's, uh, you know, who's committed sin and taking someone else in that, in that process. There's discernment that's expected there. Luke 17, 3-4, Jesus says, Be on guard if your brother sins. He doesn't say, just ignore it. He doesn't say, well, well don't, don't, don't ruffle his feathers. He says, rebuke him. Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times and says, I repent, forgive him. Judgment and discernment are expected. Actions expected. Paul says in Romans, he says, what then shall we say? This is, this is chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Are we to, to exalt free grace without discernment, without any action against sin? He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? There are other texts we could go to, but I, I, think, I think for most of us that's, that's clear. It's not, it's not a blanket statement against uh, against. Uh, or, or for free grace at the expense of dealing with sin. So what is he meaning? What is he teaching us? He's teaching us that there's something beneath the, the surface. There's something that's beneath the surface, surface here. And we, and we see this and we get, we get the, the first sort of glimmer of this in this picture, this, this, this sort of ridiculous scene that Jesus gives. No, no. Here's the scene from, from th- uh, verses 3 through 5. Picture this, you're walking down the street, maybe downtown Greenville, and there's a man who has a, a beam in his eye. This isn't like a stick, like he was running through the woods. This is like a two-by-eight floor joist, and it's sticking out of his eye, and he's walking down the street. I mean, this has got to be the most ridiculous thing in the world. If you know anything about lumber, a two-by-eight sticking out of your eye, it's going to cause you to walk funny. You know, you're, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have this peculiar swaggle to you, you know, and so he's walking down the street and he's going up to people going, excuse me, you have sawdust in, in your eye. I can see it. It's, it's, it's right there as he's doing this because the, the, the beam is weighing him down. Let me, let me help take, take it out. Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, you're just going to sit there and laugh. You're going to pull out your phone. You're going to take pictures. You're going to post it on Facebook and Instagram and just go, oh my gosh, this is going to go viral and I'm going to win a million dollars, you know. Um, but it's a ridiculous scene. It would have been a ridiculous scene in Jesus' day. You know, I mean, how, how, how audacious is this, that this man who has clearly this massive vision problem and needs to go to the emergency room is concerned about the sawdust. Now, if you've ever had sawdust in your eye, you want to get it out. It's irritating. It's bothersome. You know, and if anybody can help you get it out without damaging your eye, you welcome that. How much greater than if you've got this, this massive beam sticking out of your eye? But that's the picture of what Jesus is, is giving here. And it should, sort of, it should give us a clue to something else that, that he said. Because he's talking about vision. right? And he goes from judging to talking about the eye and to talking about vision. 
to give us a clue to something else that Jesus has said. If you were here a couple weeks ago and Alan was preaching about treasure uh, and, and, and wealth from Matthew 6, you may remember that in Matthew 6, verses 22, Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Here Jesus links the eye and the, and the heart. The eye and the heart. That spiritual blindness is a condition of the heart. The bad eye does not appropriate truth, which is synonymous with light there. The bad eye doesn't appropriate truth correctly Therefore, what it does digest of truth and then turn around and factor out to the rest of the body results in in darkness. In essence, our behaviors and our actions towards others paint the picture of what's truly in our heart. See, when, when, when God judges our heart, it's not like He's going to reach down into our chest cavity and pull out our heart and go, let's take this thing apart and see what's in here. What happens? No, the scroll of your life is laid out and said, let's see what's in your heart. Let's see how you lived. That's how, what he means when he says, don't judge so that you won't be judged. For, wh- for the way you judge, you will be judged. It doesn't mean that, okay, well, if you're just generous and kind to people, God's going to be generous and kind to you. No, it doesn't work that way. And we'll see that here, here, here in a minute when we turn to Romans. What he's saying is that your life the way you live your life in relationship to others and the world around you is going to give evidence to what you believe in your heart. Faith begets actions towards others. That's what he's saying. And and so spiritual blindness is a a condition of of the heart. It's interesting. I love the Gospels and the facts that, that there are similar and same stories and similar and same teachings that are written differently. And so Matthew writes to a primarily Jewish audience and Luke writes primarily to a Gentile audience. And in, in Luke 6, Luke uh, gives an account of, of this parallel teaching with Jesus. Some commentators believe that it was the Sermon on the Mount. Some believe that Jesus used that, that this was a summary of a collection of teachings that Jesus preached, and one of them was the, the Sermon on, uh, on the Mount. Or perhaps when Jesus went to different cities, he was teaching a lot of the same things. Um, he would just teach them slightly differently given the context. So regardless, Luke is, is writing primarily to, to Gentiles. And one of the things that Luke includes in there that Matthew does not is he says in Luke... Um, Luke 6, 39, he says, Jesus gives this parable that a blind man cannot lead another blind man. Man, why? Because they will both fall into the pit. So here's the, here's the picture, and this follows right after uh, judging. He says, do not judge one another. He gives the parable, and then he comes down uh, a few verses later, and he gives this, this story about the speck, or gives this imagery of the, the speck and the eye and the, uh, and the log in the eye. So what's, what's the picture? What's he saying? He says that in an inability to see clearly leads to, de, to destruction. Leads to destruction. A bad eye and a bad heart lead to a life that doesn't appropriate God and himself as being glorious and it leads to destruction. 
Now in Matthew's gospel, shift kind of back to, to, to Matthew's gospel, this is a shift, and it's important, I think, for us to, to notice this. Previously, just previously, Jesus, when, as he's been teaching, he's been referring to God as Father. Referring to God as Father. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about worry. He's referring to God as, as Father. As Father. Now he's shifting, and, and, he, and he's casting the light on God as judge. And that's important, because so, so oftentimes we will gravitate towards one aspect of God or, or another. We maybe favor God more as, uh, as Father, but we don't like the idea of God as judge. Or maybe we like the idea of, uh, of, 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 of God as judge. That's, that's, that's easy for us. You know, we, like, we, like, we like privilege based off behavior. Maybe, maybe in our past we've been conditioned for that. But the idea of free grace and God as Father is foreign to us. But Jesus spreads the light uh, uh, of, of God's glory across all of, all of his character and all of who he is. And you'll see this through the rest of chapter 7 um, is, is dealing with God as, uh, as sovereign judge. And that's important for us. That's the underlying common denominator here as well because God will judge each person for deeds done in the body. So with that being said, flip over to Romans chapter 2. As we look at this, the spiritual blindness is a, is a symptom of a bad heart. Romans chapter 2, I'll give you some context. So in chapter 1, Paul writes and he's, he's describing pagan Gentiles and that they're condemned in their, in their ignorance. And you could just hear the Jews sitting sort of in the audience going, yeah, that's right, preach it, brother. But in chapter 2, he shifts he says, you, the Jews, are also under condemnation. He says in verse 2, therefore you, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you, you have no excuse. Everyone who passes judgment, uh, everyone who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And he goes on later to say, he says, look, he says there's no partiality with God. In, in verse 11, look at that, verse 11, there's no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law, non-Jewish folks, they'll also perish without the law. Nobody gets out scot-free. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are justified before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. He's putting everybody under that. You know, I, I, I'll tell you, a few years ago, I was studying through Romans, and that verse 11 hit me like a freight train. I always heard that there's no partiality with God. Well, God loves everybody. No, that's, and that, that was a comforting statement for me. But I read this in, in Romans 2, and it knocked me down. There's no partiality with God in his judgment. In, in his judgment, for all who have sinned without the law, they'll die without the law. All who have sinned under the law, they'll die under the law. 
In God's judgment, there's no partiality. The standard is here for, for, for God's judgment. You know, our culture makes the assumption that God's judgment will be less severe than man's judgment. That's, that's what underlies that. When somebody says, well, God's my judge and not you. If, we're think, if you're a Christian and you hear that and you're thinking about that rightly, it should cause you to shudder to your bones because that person is looking at God going, well, God is, I have no regard, no respect for God. God does his thing. He leaves me to do my thing. And when I die, we're going to shake hands because I was a kind person, you know, or I was nice to, to people, but didn't regard him as who he was and who he cast himself and who he describes himself to be in his word. Therefore, God's judgment upon me is going gonna, is gonna to be good. It's going to be better than your assessment of me now or so-and-so's assessment of me now. Paul's, Paul's words are, there's no partiality with God based off your own works. Nothing that you do gains you greater favor with God. You should not fear man's judgment more than God's judgment. It should be, should be in the in the. In the reverse if we're if we're honest about ourselves there's no partiality with god means all will fall under strict judgment verses 17 through 21 paul goes on to 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 express the this to the jews he says here that the well look at this verse 17 but if you bear the name jew and you rely upon the law and boast in god and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind. Here's our link to, to Matthew here. If you're wondering where in the world is he going with this, here's our link to Matthew. You're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? Paul says, here's what you've got. The law is the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. It's a guide to the blind. And you Jews have the law, and this is its function. It's not designed to save you. It's designed to pull back the curtain and let the light of the glory of God shine into darkened areas. And the first place it's supposed to shine is in your own heart. Yet you're failing to apply it to yourselves. You're failing to, to apply it to yourselves. You remember the story of Jonah? I think this is one of the this is one of the best Old Testament narratives on, on this. Remember the story of Jonah? And, and God goes to Jonah and says, Jonah, go to, go to Nineveh, you know, and, and, and proclaim judgment on them, basically. And Jonah's very, he's very keen and aware of God's mercy. And he goes, no, I'm not going because you're a merciful God and I'm afraid they're going to repent and then you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna forgive them. And then there's a story, you know, he leaves in the fish and they, you know, each Jonah spits him out. We get to the end of the story. Jonah goes. He preaches to the people judgment and they repent and God doesn't crush them. And Jonah's all excited, right? And he, he leaves and that's the, end of the, that's the end of the story. No, that's not it. Jonah gets upset. He gets upset because he wants... He, he looked at the Ninevites and goes, those are a terrible, worthless, dirty, nasty people they deserve your judgment. Crush them. And God goes, I'm going to have compassion on them. And Jonah, Jonah can't reconcile that. And so he sits out and he pouts and he gets upset. God causes a, a, a plant to grow up o over him. 
gives him shade. He sends a worm. The worm kills the plant. There's an east wind that comes, blows the plant uh, away, and it scorches Jonah, and Jonah gets upset. And the story ends with God saying, Jonah, do you have a right to be upset over this plant? And he goes, yeah, I have a right, a right even to death. I kind of feel like Jonah was a dramatic kind of guy. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> just a little bit. And, and, and so he has compassion on this, on this plant. God caused it to grow up, and then he killed it. He's got, com- he's got compassion on it. It's a fun discussion, you know, of how Jonah viewed compassion. But God teaches Jonah a lesson. It's a lesson for us. He goes, you have compassion on this plant you didn't work for. So how about me, who have compassion on 12,000 people who don't even know their right hand from their left? They're ignorant. They don't have the law. They're condemned without the law. Whatever light that they do have, whatever moral goodness is in Nineveh, they misappropriate it. You see that? The drinking that they're doing, the, 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 the sacrifices they're giving, all of this moral degradation that's there, they're in blindness. You want me to crush them? Jonah, do you think you're any better than them? Do you think you're any better than them? Do you have a, do you have a right? Who are you to want to stand in judgment over this people? And the story ends there with us sitting there reflecting on our own hearts and where do we stand. I, I think in, in Romans, if, if, if a chapter, or it's not a chapter, but if a section could be written to Christians, because Paul writes one about pagan Gentiles who are, are as far removed from, from, from the gospel and from Judaism and from the law as possible. And then he comes in in chapter two and he writes to the to the Jews. He says, hang on, you're, you're, not, you know, you're not alleviated from this as well. And then chapter three, he summarizes it, shows how everybody's under condemnation. He sets himself up for the, for the apex of, of the gospel and justification by faith, which is in Romans chapter four. But if, if a section could be written to Christians today, I think it might look similar to what's written to the Jews here. Let me just kind of paraphrase this. If it were written, and just give me some liberty here, But if you bear the name Christian and you rely upon the gospel and boast in God and you know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the gospel and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the gospel, the embodiment of my grace and my mercy and true wisdom, you therefore who are to be my witnesses, do you not witness me? Do you not bear the marks of my grace upon your own heart? Wasn't that the promise of the new covenant? This is in, in Jeremiah, they will not teach everyone his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. How does that come through? It comes through the grace of the gospel. Comes to the grace of the gospel, recognizing the gravity of our own sin and our need for Jesus. Because here's what judgment does judgment places me in the seat of valuing things against myself. It's me, it's me going, This is good, and you're that's bad that you're doing, and so I'm going to lord this over top of you. Complete disregard for God. For, for how he's created us, for what good is, is in his eyes, and the mercy that he has shown 
shown to us. So here, here's the question. Do you see the gravity of your own sin before God and does it arrest your heart to cry out for God for mercy? I'm not talking about in the past when maybe you, 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 you came to know Christ for the first time. I'm talking about daily. Does, 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 does God's word wash over you? Does it judge the thoughts and intentions of your, of your heart as the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4 verse 12? To judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart and show where you need the gospel. Show where you need the grace of Christ applied in your, in your life. Because this is the beginning of wisdom and that's the start of removing the log from your eye. Because truth be told, I think everyone in this room, if the... If the if the picture were a reality, we would each one of us have a two by eight sticking out of our eye. If we walk into pretty much any other gospel believing church in Greenville, in the United States, and in the world, there, it would be there. There are logs that must be removed from our eye daily. Daily. If we're not seeking to remove them, we're in danger of falling into the pit. The beginning of wisdom is, is uh, assessing our own condition before God and realizing the greatness of his mercy in light of our sin past present and then future it's the beginning of wisdom and the start of removing the log from our own eye so we begin to assess moral failures by first examining ourselves we do that through the, the lens of scripture but what about addressing the sins of others that's the call in verse 5 get the log out of your eye then you will see clearly to take the sawdust out of your brother's eye. That, that ocular irritant has to be removed. Sin has to be dealt with. That's a pattern throughout Scripture. So what do we do with it? Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, verse 22. I'll give you some context here. Earlier in in chapter 8, Jesus feeds uh, 4,000 people who've been faithfully listening to him all day. He performs a miracle and he he feeds 4,000 people. The next section, Pharisees come and they ask Jesus uh, for for a sign. They're they're asking for a sign to test him and he denies them. I'm not going to give you a sign. Then what follows, the, he and the disciples get in the boat and they cross over the sea and the disciples are in the boat and they don't have a lot of food and they're worried. They're worried over their stomachs. And Jesus warns them, beware the leaven of the, of the Pharisees. He says, do you not see? Do you not understand? Do you have a hardened heart? And then what follows after that, and, the, and then he questions them. He says, when I fed the 5,000, how many extra did we pick up? Twelve. I fed the 4,000. How many extra did we, did we pick up? He said, seven. He said, don't you understand? Don't you understand? And then what, what follows after that is an, is an interesting healing. We pick up in verse 22. It says, and they came to Bethsaida, and they, found, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spinning on, on, his, on his eyes and laying his hands on him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I I see men, for I I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently 
and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. It's an interesting story and lots of questions. Why did Jesus heal in this way? Why did he he only partially give him vision initially, you know, and not just heal him completely? Um, But the story illustrates several points for us this morning. Um, Because this is ultimately what the root of what's going on in the in the previous scenarios with the, uh, with, the, with the Pharisees and with the disciples. One, both the Pharisees and the disciples, they're not seeing Jesus clearly. They're not seeing Jesus clearly. That was the problem. Unbelief plagues both of them. One of them in outright rebellion, that was the Pharisees, and the other was just simple ignorance. Simple ignorance. Unbelief is, con- is, the, is the common denominator there. Two, blindness requires a divine touch to alleviate it. Blindness requires a a divine touch to alleviate it. You cannot in yourself, in your own judgment of somebody else's sin, remove blindness from them. Any more than than, than you can go out to a person who is physically blind and just snap your fingers and make them unblind in and of yourself. It's a ridiculous notion. And yet so oftentimes that's how we approach people. Oh, I see the... I see the error in your ways. Let's sit down and let me see if I can, I can, I can talk you through this. You know, let me see if I can take the sawdust out of, out of your eye. No, blindness has to requires a divine touch in order for in order for it to be alleviated, and that should humble us every day. Should humble us every day when we're in in conversations with people, or conversations with our spouses, or in conversations with our children, when we're in conversations with ourselves. Oh, come on, I'm not the only one that talks to myself. Come on. Blindness requires a divine touch to alleviate it. Also note this, that blindness isn't immediately removed completely. It's a process. I think that's the reason that with the way Mark records this story and, and what he brings to the surface and why he records the story where it is. It's a process. No, when you, if you became... Became a Christian, you have a marked point maybe in your life where God opened your eyes to the truths of the scripture. Everything wasn't laid bare to you and you saw all of sin and all of it and you just went, I got it. Everything is clear now. There were still a lot of questions, still a lot of struggles. God saved you, hit you upside the head and now you're trying to figure out what happened to you. And he's pulling you along and you're going, okay, you're changing things here. I'm not really sure what all's going on, but I'm following you. I don't understand everything. I don't see everything clearly, but I'm following you. It's a process. Sanctification is our growing in the appropriating of the light of the gospel daily. Sanctification is the growing in our appropriating of the light of the gospel daily. As God renews our heart, we begin to appropriate the light of the gospel in our lives to apply it. So spiritual blindness isn't always immediately removed. It's a process. And then also we don't see, and I think this is probably the most pointed in, in, in how, how this links back to Matthew and, 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 uh, and, and judging. When we, we don't see Jesus as he truly is, we don't see people as they truly are. When we don't see Jesus as he truly is, we don't see people as he truly are. Notice this blind man. Jesus asked him, do you see anything? 
He says, I see men as trees walking about. Now, he knew men, he probably knew trees because he probably bumped into them in his blindness. What's that? Okay, that's a tree. Tree, got it. Okay, stay away from that. That doesn't move. No, he probably also knew men because he'd had interactions with them before. He knew people. He had interactions with them. But here in his sort of semi-vision, semi-blind state, he, he confuses the two, but he recognizes it. He goes, I, I see men. I think that's men, but they're, they're walking about like trees. See them like trees walking around. It was a partial, partial vision. And that's the way we see. Don't, don't we see? We see as in a mirror dimly. We don't have complete vision. Is that's a process with other people? It's a process with us too. And again, that should humble us deeply in our relationships with other people. And we see other people sinning or, or doing things that perhaps are unwise. And that's an important thing to note. The difference between outright blatant sin and people who maybe they're not sinning, but they're not acting wisely. Because you've got to handle that differently. You've got to handle... Handle that differently. People who act foolishly and people who act sinfully. You got to handle that differently. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's yourself. You've got to assess that and go: Am I acting foolishly or am I acting sinfully? You got to handle that differently. So we should see people as blinded by sin and Satan and the true beauty and glory of God, not as unworthy of our love and affection. That's, that's, that's the, the problem. And, and, and as we don't see clearly, we have the tendency to shift one way or another. We cast judgment on other, other people um, and we see them as unworthy of our, of our love and affection. And we must stay away from that person no, that they don't get their dirt on me. They're they're unworthy of my, of of my of my affection. Maybe they maybe they maybe they conduct themselves in social situations a little weird, you know. Or I just I don't think that that's right. Maybe they got tattoos. I don't know. Maybe they they hang out with an odd crowd. I don't know. Um, they're unworthy of my. Of my love and uh, of affection. That's what judgmentalism does, right? It puts myself in the position of lording over, over another person, assessing another person's value based off something that's really I haven't actually applied to myself. I guess I'd say. But what about Christ? Christ died for us when we were unlovely, when we were unclean, when we were undeserving of judgment. How much more than should we be gentle and merciful to to others? In fact, Jesus says Christians are characterized by this kind of love. He says, they will know that you're my disciples. How? By your love for one another. That's not warm, fuzzy feelings. That's gentleness and that's grace. That's saying, I see the log in your eye and I see the log in my eye. We've got to do something about it. Let me come alongside you. Let's link arms. Let's go to the cross together. Let me do this. I'll give you two, two rooms just to think of. Walk in the first room. Let's see what's going on. Walk in the first room. There's a competition. It's a race. Picture yourself in this room. Maybe it's a field. 
People are running. They're running, it's a race, but it's not real clear what the goal is. It's not real clear what the finish line is, but everybody is racing and clamoring, trying to get somewhere, but there's almost like there's no rules. People are biting at each other. They're gnashing at each other. They're, they're slugging it out, trying to clamor on top of each other in order to get somewhere. They're racing for a prize, but only one of them can gain it. It's a competition. And if each person's determined, I'm going to get it at the expense of you, at the expense of everybody else. Let's walk. You got that picture in your mind? All right, let's walk into the next room. Next room's a hospital. Everybody's in here. Everybody in this hospital and in, in this hospital ward has a malignant cancer. You look around and you see uh, other people in the room. They're dying of this disease. And it's just visually obvious. Most are refusing to acknowledge the cancer. It's clear they're in pain. It's clear that they're struggling. I mean, like, really, really struggling. Most of them don't want to acknowledge this cancer. They don't want to recognize it. No. They're playing with toys. They're playing with things. They're, they're trying to... Uh, they know something's wrong, and they want the symptoms to go away, but they can't see that what's killing them is, is internal. Now, one person comes into the room, and it's clear that this person has that cancer, too. But they're holding a box, and the box has vials of the cure. The head physician has given them the task of administering that cure to all these sick people. And this person needs the cure as well, but that cure takes a while. The cure takes a while to, 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 to actually bring, bring it, to do the alleviating work. So you got those two rooms in your mind? Now here's the question. If those two rooms pick, uh, d- describe two worldviews on how you view the world, which room are you in? Do you look at others like the first room and you assess their worth based on external factors, based on the things that they wear, maybe the color of their skin, maybe it's, a, maybe it's doctrinal things. You know, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's doctrinal things. Well, they just don't have the right doctrine or they just don't ascribe to the to to, to a high enough standard of uh, you know of, uh, of these doctrinal issues do you assess their worth based on those things and do you determine whether to spend your time with them whether to share your love with them based on whether you feel they're worthy of that of that love that's judgmentalism but that's you looking for approval of something maybe you want to maybe you want their, their approval, their affection. There's something there that says, I've got to be on top of this person in order for me to get the prize, in order for me to feel worthy, in order for me, for, for me to, to feel clean, to feel approved by God. I've got to be on top of this person. That's what judgmentalism says. I've got to crush this person with my standard so that I'll feel better. So I'll feel relief. The truth is, nobody, nobody gets there. If you're the spectator in that room, you're looking at that just going, I don't want to be a part of this. Isn't that the way the rest of the world is? 
The rest of the world doesn't go, the world judges, we do not. The world goes, well, we know, we judge. Let's be honest, we judge. It's a battle to the death, and you're in the thick of the fight. You know, may the strongest dog win, basically. But that's the, that's the picture the world casts, and so many Christians get sucked into that, thinking, oh, all right, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast my judgment out here so that I'll feel clean, and then turn around and look at God and go, God, do you approve me? And goes, you don't get it at all. Now here's the other picture. In the other, in the other room, do you see yourself as terribly, terribly afflict, afflicted by the malignant cancer of sin and being in a fallen world and in desperate need of the, salve of, of the cure of God's mercy? Do you see Jesus as your only hope in this world and in the next? And do you treasure his love above all else? Do you see him as the only cure for the malignancy of sin in yourself and in others? If you do, that will lead to a compassion for others who are tangled in the web of sin. Which room do you stand in? What's your perspective on the world around you? Ultimately, it's rooted in belief in who Christ is and a growing belief in who Christ is. Or unbelief in Christ in, in who Christ is. Appropriating the gospel, appropriating Christ's shed blood on the cross, necessarily turns around and merits itself out as genuine, gentle love towards others when they've wronged us, when they've wronged other people, rather than in judgmentalism. So in closing, what's what's our application? Now, I don't know that I'm going to get to the, the pearls and pigs. I may leave that for you for next, for next week. I'll say a word, I'll say a word about it. <laughs> um, what's the application? How about for our accountability? Oftentimes when we talk about accountability amongst one another, there's, there's two sort of extremes. It's a, all right, let's sit around and let's confess our sins to one another and let's talk about how we can change our behavior with no real discussion about what's the root unbelief that's at the core of my heart. And the danger of that becomes, it becomes a situation for judgmentalism. It's a, I assess how well I'm doing in my holiness based off of whether or not I sin this week or not and whether I've got to confess my sin in my group of accountability partners. And that's dangerous. That becomes very, very dangerous because it neglects grace and mercy and it leans on a, on a, on a New Testament form of legalism. The opposite side of that is more of just licking wounds. It's like, well, we're not going to address it. We're not going to try and do anything about it. We're just going to sort of sit around. And we're going to have a pity party. You know, we're going to hug and we're going to, oh, I feel bad for you. And, you know, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. And, but that's the extent of it. It's never a, hey, we're going to try and deal with this. So those are oftentimes the two extremes. But biblical Christian accountability comes together and, and, and has that perspective of the hospital coming in and say, look, I know you're affected by the malignant cancer of, you know, of, of sin. You've just ad admitted it. And here's the area of your life where, where, where it's coming to the surface and it's causing death. You know what? I, I, here's an area of my life where that's coming to the surface too. We're, we're in the same boat. We're in the same hospital. I got the same cancer you got. But you know what? I know the cure and I know you do too. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how Christ is sufficient 
Bring him to the table and let's apply the gospel here. What are you not believing about Jesus here? Or what are you believing wrongly about Jesus here? Say, I'll say this, when we make the shift to our new missional communities, this is going to be a crucial element of the stickiness of these groups. Because very much about the, 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 one of the core things about the discussions is the application of the gospel. And so it's getting to root heart issues. Yeah, that requires being vulnerable. It requires sort of pulling back the, you know, the, the shirt of your, of your life and going, here's where the cancer is, is afflicting me. Here's where the cancer is afflicting my family. And then other people going, hey, you know what? It's doing the same with us. But we're in the word and we've got the, the, we've got the, the cure of the gospel here. Let's, let's open that up. Let's open that up and let's see where does this apply in your life? And where does it apply in my life? So that we can run the race faithfully. What about in raising kids? I'm convicted of this. When I'm tempted to talk about somebody behind their back, even just a side sarcastic comment or something, and my kids hear it, when they turn around and repeat it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that came out of my mouth. <sighs> no. That, that if that's the behavior of our table conversations at home and our kids are hearing that, and and. Even if it's labeled as sarcasm and joking, oh, I don't really mean it. No, it's judging other people. And it has the effect of teaching our kids how to judge other people by the same criteria. And if we're honest, the apple won't fall, fall, fall far from the tree if we don't nip that in the bud early. What about wives and husbands? Is there an economy of grace amongst you spouses when dealing with sins in one another's lives? And, and, and recognizing the difference between sin and personality quirks. Because there's a difference there. There's a difference there. Is there an economy of grace? Because the more you see the God's grace in your own life and you appropriate the gospel, the less you are going to be tempted to judge your spouse when he or she disappoints you. And you don't have to be married long to realize that happens. You will disappoint your spouse regularly and your spouse will disappoint you because your spouse isn't meant to be Jesus. Your, your, your spouse is meant to show you what Jesus is like, what grace is like. And you're meant to be that for your spouse. What about for non-Christians? Giving the gospel to lost people. It's not a, well, I'm a Christian and you're not. They're afflict, afflicted by the same cancer that we are. Giving them the gospel. The same gospel that sanctifies you and sanctifies your brother and sister in Christ justifies the lost person. But they've got to have their eyes open. Spiritual blindness has to be cured by the sovereign hand of God. So you enter into that conversation with grace and much prayer. Even in the midst of that, as that person's talking to you, just going, Lord, give me words to speak. Give me words to speak because I, I can't make this happen. I see the cancer and I see what it's doing, but I can't make this happen. Just give me the words to speak to apply the gospel to this person's life and then you change their heart. Nobody walks away from a, a, a witnessing conversation and goes, man, I nailed that. No. They walk away from it and just go, Lord, have mercy. 
Lord, have mercy. And we praise Him when we see fruit. And we praise Him when a person rejects it. So let me close. Let me close. I'll give a, a scripture verse. I think Paul captures this well. Romans, uh, Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Let's pray.